welcome to the third episode of the new JPO podcast, brought to you by the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics and POSNA. I'm Carter Clement, one of your co-hosts and a faculty member at the Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and as usual, we'll spend the next 20 minutes reviewing eight featured articles, including interviews with authors and a guest commentary. We'll start with an article from the hip section of the journal from the UK entitled, Does Late Hip Dysplasia Occur After Normal Ultrasound Screening in Breech Babies? It's currently controversial whether certain infants face a risk of developing dysplasia even after negative screening with an examined ultrasound at six weeks of age. In particular, literature on breech hips is mixed. Some research has suggested that unstable hips in breech infants tend to stabilize naturally, while another study recently reported that nearly a third of breech babies with normal screening ultrasounds will develop late dysplasia. The current study prospectively followed 90 breech babies with normal initial screening, including ultrasound and physical exam. After 13 months, 7% had developed dysplasia, which was defined as an acetabular index more than two standard deviations above the age-specific mean, as previously reported by Tanis et al. One patient had a capsulorophy and acetabuloplasty. As a sub-analysis, the authors randomized patients to either observation or a specialized abduction diaper named the healthy hip diaper, and there was no statistical difference between the groups. The authors concluded that late dysplasia occurs among breech infants, but at lower rates than some recent literature has suggested. They do not recommend a specialized diaper or any other abduction device for breech infants with normal screening ultrasounds and exam. Next, we will review a neuromuscular article out of Australia entitled Orthopedic Surgery in Dystonic Cerebral Palsy. The authors begin by explaining that historically, orthopedic surgery has been considered effective for spasticity but not dystonia, which is a movement disorder with involuntary muscle contractions. These can be either intermittent or sustained and are typically caused by injury to the basal ganglia and thalamus. The authors of this article hypothesized that dystonic patients can benefit from surgery more than our traditional dogma suggests. They studied 37 patients with CP who had undergone lower extremity surgery and whose primary movement disorder was dystonia as diagnosed by a neurologist or physiatrist. 18 patients with GMFCS 1, 2, or 3 had surgeries to improve gait, and these children were grouped together. These patients tended to have mild overall dystonia but moderate or severe focal dystonia in the operative segment. 19 patients with GMFCS 4 or 5 had surgeries for hip preservation and were grouped together. These patients all had moderate or severe generalized dystonia. Overall, surgical results were good. Among the 18 patients in the milder group, two had early recurrences of a deformity, both involving dynamic supination after split tib-ant transfers, and three had unpredictable results such as an internal rotation contracture of the hip after an external derotational osteotomy. Among the 19 patients in the more severe group, two had early recurrences, both involving hip adduction contractures after adductor releases, and one had an unpredictable result when a hip adduction contracture and dislocation developed after abductor release. The authors concluded that early recurrences and unpredictable results are less common in dystonia than some orthopedic dogmas suggest and recommend considering surgery in these patients. I now have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Hank Chambers, a CP specialist at Rady Children's Hospital in San Diego, to consider the implications of this work. Dr. Chambers, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. In your clinic, what do you find are the most reliable ways to differentiate dystonic posturing from spasticity? You know, I think this is a, always a problem because we call children with cerebral palsy as having spastic uh, diplegia or spastic quadriplegia. And in my experience, I think most of the kids who are the GMFCS 4 and 5 really have dystonia. It's the, I think the hardest part in all of these patients is that they have a combination. There's never, never someone that has pure dystonia or pure spasticity because it's uh, similar parts of the brain are affected. So the kids that have dystonia have posturing. So they hold their elbows flexed, their wrists flexed, 
they turn their head to one side. Um, many of them have a similar speech pattern. And so I think that's, that's how you tell they have um, dystonia. And of course, if you check their reflexes, some of the more severe children don't even have hyperreflexia. They just have this posturing uh, position. And I think that's how you, we've defined dystonia in the uh, work group that was mentioned in the paper. Do you have any indications for operating on dystonic deformities? Or is it more fair to say that you frequently operate on patients with dystonia, but you're treating their concomitant spasticity or other fixed contractures that have developed rather than operating on actual dystonic deformities? Yeah, the interesting thing about dystonia is they don't always get contractures, as opposed to spasticity, where the muscle's always firing in dystonia. Sometimes that's not true. Or the antagonist and the agonist are firing at the same time, so they don't develop a contracture. But kids with dystonia develop the similar problems is kids with spasticity, which is hip dysplasia, hip dislocation, foot deformities, either varus or valgus, and hamstring contractures, for example. I think the purpose of this article, and I think something that those of us who take care of children with CP are concerned about, is that it's sometimes unpredictable when you lengthen a muscle if maybe the antagonist will take over at that point. And so I think that's why we've a little bit been hesitant to do the simple surgeries of cerebral palsy, which are tendon lengthenings and tendon transfers. So at this point, what is your your approach to those simple procedures in patients with dystonia, do you have ways of choosing which patients you will treat like they're spastic and which ones you'll avoid? Yeah, I agree with what the authors wrote in this paper, that bony surgery like derotational osteotomies, lateral column lengthening, calcaneal osteotomies, those kind of things work. And I don't think that matters whether they have dystonia or not. Probably their most two successful soft tissue lengthenings were adductor lengthenings and gastroxoleus lengthenings, which I agree work as well. But they had some of the same problems that I had in children with dystonia, when you do a tendon transfer, for example, in varus, that you either pull them into valgus and then you have to do surgery or it recurs really rapidly. That's a real point of their study is that some of these children have focal dystonia, not dystonia that happens throughout their entire body. And when you do these tendon transfers or a simple lengthening like a posterior tibialis lengthening, the foot may go into valgus as opposed to staying in varus. That makes sense. As always, Dr. Chambers, thank you. I've learned something and I really appreciate you joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Next, I'll hand things off to one of my co-hosts, Dr. Lauer at UNC Chapel Hill, to discuss two articles. This is Craig Lauer again. We're going to move on to uh, the hip section of the journal, and I'm going to discuss an article entitled Intermediate to Long-Term Results of Femoral Neck Lengthening or Morsher Osteotomy. This comes from lead author Mark Eidelman and uh, senior author Noam Bohr. And this is a multi-center study out of Israel. So the purpose of this study was to discuss mid to long-term follow-up of the Morsher osteotomy, which is true femoral neck lengthening procedure for patients with coxa breva and greater trochanter overgrowth. Um, technically speaking, for those who want to understand how this osteotomy is done, uh, this is an osteotomy of the inner trochanteric region that uses a 130-degree blade plate. However, you take an intercalary section from the overgrown greater trochanter and you excise this. It's termed the moving fragment, and it's typically about 15 to 25 millimeters thick. This reduces the height of the greater trochanter to restore the length of the abductors. And then the interesting thing is you actually skewer this onto your blade plate prior to inserting it into the uh, head and neck segment. And what this does is effectively medialize or lengthen the neck relative to the plate and the femur shaft. Then you can fix the greater trochanter segment with tension wire and screw construct. 
the surgeons did a retrospective review of their results in 18 of their patients, which had 20 hips treated with this osteotomy. The etiology was Perthes disease in 10 of these patients. Four had developmental dysplasia of the hip, and four had AVN, either post-septic or post-traumatic or idiopathic. The patient's median age was 16 years at surgery, and they were followed for a median of seven years, anywhere from four and a half to 10 years total. And then the pre- and post-operative evals were mainly Harris hip score, which included physical exam and gait exam. As for their results, 14 out of the 20 patients who had a preoperative limp had elimination of that limp following this osteotomy and healing. Uh, Median Harris hip score improved from 72.5 to 94.5. The complications are fairly minor. There were two wire breakages and one blade migration, or what sounds like blade cutout, that did require a revision. Three patients were converted to total hip arthroplasty. The first one was considered a failure, and this was converted within four years. The last two were in the same patient who had total hip arthroplasties performed at 10 years. All of the authors noted that these patients had incongruent hip joint prior to the procedure, and they indicate that this is an important selection criteria. You must ensure that you have a congruent joint before performing this procedure, or you will continue to have intraarticular problems and progression of arthritis. They don't comment on whether having this osteotomy complicated the later total hip arthroplasty, as I would expect it probably would. It would be interesting to see the quality of reconstruction that's possible following a failed Morsher osteotomy. Moving back to the results, the limb length discrepancy generally did improve by 1.3 centimeters. So the authors here conclude that this can be an effective treatment of patients with this clinical problem. They note that this is the largest group of patients with this duration of follow-up. And one of the major limitations is just that there's not a comparative study. There's no ability to compare these results to just an osteoplasty or perhaps surgical dislocation and relative neck lengthening. But this at least confirms that the Morsher is a serviceable option for reconstructing these difficult hips. So the last article I'd like to discuss is slightly different from the original research manuscripts that are typical in JPO publications in that it is a charter adopted by POSNA as it relates to physician and member wellness. Lead author is Michael Goldberg from Seattle Children's Hospital, and all the authors are from the POSNA Wellness Committee. So to discuss this policy, I'm joined by POSNA's immediate past president and the senior author on the article, Dr. Rick Schwinn from Children's Mercy Hospital and University of Missouri, Kansas City. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Dr. Schwinn. Uh, Thank you, Craig. Nice to be here. So to launch right into it, POSNA's triple aims as a society have traditionally been pretty standard, enhancing patient experience, improving our population health, and reducing costs, all things that directly relate to the patient. And this charter now establishes a fourth aim of optimizing member wellness. Can you tell us why this major change was adopted? Uh, yeah, we're not the first organization to address the uh, fourth aim. And it was really Mike Goldberg's initiative and some of his work with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement that encouraged POSNA to look into this further. And because of Mike's influence, we spent a lot of time last year while I was president to look into the whole issue about member wellness. And uh, it became obvious that we needed to take a lead in this. Do you have any sense of how big the problem is uh, with physicians being unwell? Well, you know, there's some metrics that were concerning to us. One of the obvious metrics is the fact that 400 physicians die of suicide each year. And um, and we know that even uh, among orthopedic surgeons, there's a, a high rate of suicide. And that's sort of the tip of the iceberg that tells us that even though some physicians and orthopedic surgeons might be very well, uh, there's a large group that are not. And if you look at orthopedic surgeons that say they're very, very happy, about 37%, which sounds good, but that means that the the rest of the people could be happier than 
they are. And I think it, it's very important that we don't just accept this being okay. I think we need to be having a perception that we all need to be well and we shouldn't leave anybody behind. Statistically speaking, there's over half the listeners right now who are thinking to themselves, you know, I'm not burned out and why should I really care about this as a problem? Uh, what do you say to those people? You're not burned out yet, but you may become burned out if you continue having to work with systems that are not very functional. About 80% of burnout is felt to be system-related, not so much resiliency-related in, in the individual. And you may be putting up with a system that could be much improved if you had an opportunity. And things like having a trauma room the next day is a really great help to not having to be up at night, having a medical record that's dysfunctional, bribes or whatever it is. And so no matter how good you feel now, I think we can all make our situation better. They've shown that that burned out physicians uh, do have an increased risk for experiencing medical error. So even if you as a physician feel yourself not burned out, your team members may be and your colleagues may be. And so you're, we're all forced to deal with this reality that our patients can be affected, not just perhaps our own patients, but the, the patients that are close to us through the teams that we are involved with. Statistically speaking, is, is there a way to quantify the impact that physician burnout is having on pediatric orthopedics? I think that's where we need to, um, as a society, we have the, you know, we have 1,400 members in POSNA. And I think as a society, you know, we have a half a million dollar research budget, which is one of the highest budgets of any society I'm aware of compared to the, the membership. And we've not really dedicated our research resources to looking into this, especially the effect on patient outcomes and well-being. And so I think that's one place that we, in the next three years, that POSNA can make a difference. As we review research proposals, we can both encourage projects that look at the wellness and the impact on, on patient care. And then I also encourage people to think about these types of projects. Well, it'll be interesting to see what, what comes of all this and what we find out as we delve in deeper. Um, I really appreciate both your committee taking a leadership role on this and also appreciate your time joining me today. Thank you very much, Craig. I appreciate your time. Thank you. As a note, Dr. Schwind wanted the listeners to know that anyone interested in getting involved in policy or research regarding the wellness can apply to be involved in the POSNA Wellness Committee. Thanks, Craig. With that, I'll now hand things over to our third co-host, Dr. Sanders, to review the next two featured articles. This is your co-host, Julia Sanders, Assistant Professor at the University of Colorado, and I'm going to discuss articles from the tumor and trauma sections of the journal with you today. The first is titled, Functional and Oncological Outcomes After Treatment of Chondroblastoma with Intralesional Curatage by Ebeid et al. out of Cairo University and the University of Southern California. The authors retrospectively reviewed 91 patients with chondroblastoma over a 20-year period to describe the characteristics of this lesion as well as evaluate the outcomes following interlesional curatage. They found the most common locations of involvement to be the proximal tibia, distal femur, proximal humerus, and proximal femur. All patients were treated with intralesional curatage, and a high-speed burr was used in 72.5%. They filled the resulting cavity with autogenous bone graft, bone substitute, bone cement, or a combination. They found a 4.4% complication rate and a 3.3% local recurrence rate. They determined that thorough intralesional curatage using a high-speed burr, in addition to either bone grafting or bone cement, is successful in treating chondroblastoma with a low recurrence rate and excellent long-term outcomes. The authors suggest that the use of adjuvants is less important than aggressive curatage, even when the lesion is juxtaphyseal, as they noted only two patients with complications related to physeal arrest. While the study is limited by its retrospective nature, it does add significantly to the limited literature on this subject. 
Next, we'll move to the trauma section of the journal to review the article, Extensor Tendon Injury Associated with Dorsal Entry Flexible Nailing of Radial Shaft Fractures in Children, a report of five new cases and review of the literature. This paper is by Dr. Melman and his colleagues from Cincinnati Children's. The authors performed a retrospective review of 338 patients treated with elastic stable intramedullary nailing of forearm fractures at their institution and identified five cases of extensor pollicis longus rupture following dorsal entry at the distal radius. They then performed a systematic review of the literature and discovered an additional 28 cases of the same complication. After reviewing all 33 cases combined, they determined that EPL rupture is unique to the dorsal approach to elastic nailing. The injury is diagnosed on average 10 weeks following the index procedure and may be treated with EIP to EPL transfer, tendon release or lysis of adhesions, direct repair, or graft reconstruction. All operatively treated patients with 12-month follow-up were noted to have good functional outcomes. The authors recommend consideration of the lateral approach for elastic nail entry, despite a small risk of injury to the superficial branch of the radial nerve. Thanks, Julia. Next, we move to the spine section of the journal to discuss an article entitled Distal Junctional Failure in Pediatric Spinal Surgery from the Mayo Clinic. The authors retrospectively identified 15 patients over 14 years who developed DJF after instrumented spinal fusion. DJF was defined as hardware failure or a three-column fracture at the bottom of the construct, so patients who only had distal junctional kyphosis were not included. Preoperatively, nine patients had scoliosis, four had hyperkyphosis, and two had combined kyphoscoliosis. On average, failure occurred 60 days after surgery. The authors attempted to determine if the lowest instrumented vertebra predicted DJF, but were unable to do so as failure occurred both in some patients fused to an appropriate level and others who were not. When distal failure occurred, it carried an extremely high complication rate. Two patients developed severe neurodeficits, which never fully resolved. 13 of 15 required revision surgery, which was associated with a complication rate of 62%. As a result of this work, the authors now take extra precautions, including tapping all distal pedicles, minimizing distal decortication, and considering post-op bracing for patients with large sagittal corrections. I now have the pleasure of welcoming lead author, Lorena Flakeri, who is taking the time to join us from New Zealand. Dr. Flakeri, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Even though you and your colleagues did not identify any statistically significant risk factors for distal failure, are there any preoperative factors you now look for that might change your operative plan? Well, after seeing the complications that we reported, I think twice about patients with large sagittal deformities, I now think it makes sense to accept a smaller correction to reduce the risk of distal junctional kyphosis and failure. What is your preferred method to choose the lowest instrumented vertebra in the sagittal plane? I like the method described by Bob Cho et al., which means choosing the stable sagittal vertebra. That's the most proximal vertebra that's touched by a vertical line that goes through the posterior corner of the S1 M plate. Are there any other ways this work will change your practice? I agree with the techniques that we described in the paper, such as um, tapping distal pedicles to expand them and reducing aggressive distal decortication to prevent fractures, as well as bracing patients that have large sagittal deformities. Lorena, thank you again for joining us. My pleasure, Carter. Next, we'll look at an article related to practice management from Boston Children's entitled Decreasing Resource Utilization Using Standard Clinical Assessment and Management Plans. These plans go by the acronym SCAMP, and they represent a method for creating treatment protocols that evolve over time, as opposed to traditional practice guidelines, which are written by experts and then set in stone. 
For example, in this study, the surgeons in the department created a protocol for distal radius buckle fractures that involved x-rays in the ED, applying a removable splint, and a single clinic visit without x-rays at three weeks. After launching this protocol, it was reviewed periodically. Whenever surgeons deviated from the protocol, the study group determined whether the deviation was acceptable. If so, the protocol was re-evaluated and updated. If not, the surgeon was encouraged to comply in the future. After starting the SCAMP, there were about 50% less clinic visits, 60% less x-rays, and 50% less overall cost. The authors did not study satisfaction among the surgeons, but research in other fields has shown 90% satisfaction with this process since physician input is welcomed and valued unlike clinical practice guidelines. As the authors note, the reduction in clinic visits and x-rays that they achieved are, ironically, financially detrimental for hospitals and physicians in our fee-for-service system. However, if we continue moving toward bundled payments and value-based care, providers will begin to share in these savings. That's it for this month's episode. We're glad you joined us. And if you haven't already subscribed, we hope you'll do so in the iTunes store so you get future episodes directly to your phone. 